Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova Strategic Edge, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth from the edges of the business ecosystem. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With their over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova Strategic Edge. As we get started with this episode, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to listen carefully to something that will be coming up in just a few seconds. So, please settle back, close the door if that helps lower the noise level from outside, or pull over if you're in a car. All settled? Okay, here we go. Here's the sound. Were you able to hear that clearly? No? Well, yes, I did have the volume turned all the way up on the recording, but maybe if you listen to something almost always thought of as the opposite of that first recording, that might help. So once again, settle in, and here's the second sound. My guess is that one came across as very familiar. It's the sound of war. And that first one that you couldn't hear? That was peace. That very demonstration is an audio metaphor for one of the very problems we have in dealing with peace in this world. Peace may be what we consider the most desirable state for our species to experience, but its calm and quiet tone is all too often drowned out by the sounds of war. Even more damning is that what we tend to celebrate most about peace is the grand negotiations or treaties signed that led to whatever the current peace is. We seek peace by eliminating or minimizing war, often by plugging the guns of war and disarming the military forces, rather than by generating and nurturing peace through a sustainable approach that supports the creation of a thriving peace ecosystem that can support it. For this episode of Stranova Strategic Edge, and as an important subject always, but perhaps even more so in this holiday season in 2006, we are going to explore the concept of peace as a strategic innovation and how a systemic and regenerative approach to creating businesses, both for-profit and non-profit, are making a difference in helping peace grow out of the many deserts of war we have built around the world. And as we begin that exploration, it's important to understand just how fully entrenched war is in our world, which in turn is a clue to why the traditional ways of establishing peace don't ever seem to achieve sustainable results. To be more explicit on this, one of the problems of continuously living in a world of war for many years is that the entire ecosystem of both business and government begins to depend on the existence of war in order to thrive. It isn't just that those who believe in war, and even preemptive strikes, in government, or just the defense contractors themselves who make guns, tanks, aircraft, and naval vessels, among other things. It's everything. Companies outside of what we think of as the defense industry that used to be more diverse in nature, supporting multiple markets, begin to shift what they're doing to emphasize supporting the military. And their suppliers, in turn, change what they're doing as well. 
The end result is a sustainable system where the economy demands war in order to thrive, the politicians preach war in its various forms as a solution to a wide variety of problems, and we as a people become not just used to war, we actually grow dependent on the idea of and systemic interactions with what war brings to all aspects of our lives. To help understand this further, I'd like to bring in the words of former U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower from his famous speech in 1961 describing the perils of the growth of what he called the military-industrial complex. Many of you may recall this in the context of how the military and the industrial communities were indeed becoming way too interconnected. But few, I would guess, would have realized how much President Eisenhower truly understood that a brand new ecosystem of war had been created and how it was our job as a citizenry to be watchful and purposeful in getting us back on a peace footing. Here are President Eisenhower's exact words from that speech in 1961, and although this was given in the last days of his last term in office, as you listen, think of how they resonate so true, perhaps even more so, today. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Interesting, isn't it? Even for those of you who know of the speech, it's probably especially interesting to hear more of the whole of President Eisenhower's thoughts, and perhaps even more so to realize that those words were uttered almost 46 years ago and still ring true today. When ecosystems like the war one we've just been describing get established, they affect everything in the system, and therefore create a sustainable environment that tends to support war rather than encourage peace. We as a society become one enamored with war. Yes, I completely understand the objections you all have that we are constantly looking to settle disputes, and in fact make a big deal of giving worldwide peace awards to those who have helped barter peace treaties of various kinds. But throughout every aspect of this system, our thoughts are still more about peace being the absence of war than having its own distinct character. 
One measure of how insidious this is, this penetration of the system of war into every aspect of our lives, is in how our language actually evolves to match our society's preoccupation with war and the need to describe it with subtlety and nuance. How does this work? In his wonderful book, Arctic Dreams, Barry Lopez gives us a parallel illustration for how important snow is to the Eskimo people by how many different words they have for it. In the English language, since we definitely deal with snow for significant parts of the year, we have a few words that describe various aspects of snow, including flurries, blizzard, whiteout, and slush. But the Eskimo, who not only live in the snow a much larger part of their lives, but also use the snow for more of their lives, have well over 20 different types of snow in their lexicon. These include words for packed snow, the thin, ice-laden, crusty snow that forms on top of packed or powder snow when the sun melts it ever so slightly and then it refreezes, and as many as 10 different words for the way snow falls from the sky, from light flakes of powder gently drifting down to windblown, ice-filled blasts that hurt your skin when they hit. Think I'm exaggerating? Consider that when I first moved from Colorado, where it is very dry and rain is rare, to Oregon, where it rains from October to May as a minimum, I was surprised by the many different names for rain that were regularly appearing in the weather reports, such as rain, sprinkles, downpour, and mist, to name a few. Not that these are unusual for us living below the Eskimo region, but in Oregon they come up far more. As if the weather people were looking for ways to make the weather report more interesting from night to night, when I, as a newcomer from dry Colorado, was simply amazed that someone would go to such trouble to say something other than simply, it is going to rain tomorrow. So if the number of words one uses to name something is such a measure of its importance to them that they need shortcuts, single words, to describe the many subtle variations of a thing, consider what it must mean that we, as a supposedly civilized species, have so many names for that horrific thing we know of as war. Those words include battle, skirmish, fight, war, bloodshed, cold war, combat, hostility, insurrection, insurgency, a new one that the folks on high use a lot these days, and police action, one of my favorites. And what words do you know for peace? The word peace itself, and maybe ceasefire. And the last one brings the dilemma, the only common synonym for peace that showed up in this one thesaurus that I looked at, is actually a word that absolutely uses the opposite of war as its definition. So what do we conclude from this? That war as an ecosystem is a pretty entrenched one, with many tentacles and interconnections, internal dependencies, reinforcing cycles, and even the many subtleties of language that help us talk about war, while at the same time illustrating our somewhat morbid and preoccupied interest in the subject. We at Stranova would describe this as an open opportunity. Why? Because everybody else is approaching it sideways by negotiating peace out of war rather than growing peace on its own. It is a different ecosystem, and no matter how careful you are, if you build peace out of war parts, you aren't going to get true peace. Are there examples of this? The answer is yes, there are many, and all share the key elements we've described above. They embrace the need for a different system of peace and don't begin their process by trying to plug in peace replacement modules where war ones existed earlier. As one great example, take the current winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Mohamed Yunus, the founder and current head of the Grameen Bank. This unique bank was designed around giving what were previously thought of as incredibly small micro-loans, often less than $100, to very poor people who were also thought of as extremely high-risk loan applicants.
Yunus started it approximately 30 years ago with a personal initiative to make a loan of $27, yes, that's all, to a group of 42 families to help them fund a small business making products they could sell to others. It was very successful both in helping previously unfundable people create businesses and move themselves up from poverty, and at the same time demonstrating a very high repayment rate for those microloans. He broadened this as a formal research project to provide microcredit and banking services to the rural poor, starting with the village of Jobra and other villages surrounding the University of Chittagong, and later expanding to the Tangail district north of Dhaka, the capital. The Grameen Bank is now an independent bank and has over 2,200 branches in the country, covering over 70,000 villages and is in fact actually owned by the poor borrowers themselves, 94% owned in fact by those borrowers. And as of August 2006, it has 6.61 million borrowers, 97% of which are women, and with a loan recovery rate of 98.85%. Since the company's founding, it has loaned out $5.72 billion, with $5.07 billion of that repaid to date. More important than all the numbers is the stabilization of the region that has resulted, as the poor have realized that the peacetime infrastructure of very small business is a far more desirable state and can build its own far more stable ecosystem than the one of terrorism and war that it supplanted. People are working, still struggling to some extent, of course, but working in a new economy that is still developing interconnections and links to engage the full range of societal needs. And peace is growing rapidly within the regions served by the bank. As a second example, take a look at Heifer International, which gives animals such as cattle and goats and animal husbandry training to poor people around the world as a self-contained, sustainable resource that can help transform their environments as well. Founder Dan West created the Heifers for Relief program that started this all after having worked in Spain during the Spanish Civil War and seeing the challenge of getting food to those who so desperately needed it at that time. His philosophy in creating this concept was based on the old proverb, give a man a fish, you have fed him for today, teach a man to fish, and you have fed him for a lifetime. His first delivery from Heifer International was a group of 17 heifers, or young cows that have not yet given birth, shipped from Pennsylvania to Puerto Rico in 1944. Each heifer would provide a continual source of milk, offspring, and fertilizer. Since that day, the organization provides what they call 7M animals, which provide meat, milk, muscle, manure, money, materials, and motivation to help entire communities become more self-sufficient and healthy in their own ecosystems along the way. They even provide training and tools to support proper practices for having clean water in the community, plus the availability of education and affordable housing. Heifer International also encourages each community that receives its gift to pass it along to other communities through a gift of livestock of their own. And to give an example of how successful their efforts have become, consider this. In 2004, their organization supported 674,000 families through their gifts of livestock and trees. And finally, consider the story of Wangari Matai, the winner of the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize, who was born in rural Kenya and, after being educated in two Western universities as well as the University of Nairobi, returned to Kenya to introduce the concept of planting trees as a means of transforming the societal ecosystem within Kenya from one of disruptive battle to one of peace built on a literally sustainable ecosystem. As the Nobel Awards said, quote, 
Peace on Earth depends on our ability to secure our living environment. Matai stands at the front of the fight to promote ecologically viable social, economic, and cultural development in Kenya and Africa. She has taken a holistic approach to sustainable development that embraces democracy, human rights, and women's rights in particular. She thinks globally and acts locally." End quote. And during the time since she founded her enterprise, known as the Greenbelt Movement, she and those she has helped motivate have planted some 30 million trees, which has not only replaced the deforested regions savaged by war in the past, but also has replaced it with a thriving living ecosystem that has extended well beyond just the trees to all the agricultural, related economic, and societal blessings that one might expect from such a grand movement. In all three cases, these individuals and the organizations they helped build have created not just sustainable organizations, but also triggered the growth of massive and peace-embracing societal ecosystems within the communities they serve. Through their brilliant ideas, the thoughtful implementation of those ideas, and the many that those ideas have touched. Peace is now breaking out in a big way in regions that have never seen it before. Where war cannot find a place to be nurtured and grow, and where the very fabric of the societal system doesn't even know how to practice war in a successful way, or at least not as successfully as the systems these individuals have created, war will wither and die like a houseplant starved of water. It isn't easy, this business of building sustainable peace ecosystems, but it can be done. And it must be done, or we're going to find war even more in our own backyard than it is now. The good news is that it can be done, and it starts with holding the vision to implement just these kinds of strategic innovations, along with a bit of persistence to see them through to reality. So as we approach this holiday season, maybe it's time for all of us to think about the various ecosystems we're building, whether it's just in our immediate family or organization, or in the many ways we touch the world, and to take time out to consider how we might change the way we're creating our futures to help create a sustainable peace for all of us and for our children's children to enjoy for many generations to come. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.